0: Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would soften our hearts And open our ears to hear your word tonight. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. As you may have noted, today is Christ the King Sunday, where we recall and celebrate Jesus the King coming into his kingdom, establishing his kingdom. And it's fitting, on a night like tonight, as we continue our Christ and Culture series, that we spend some time talking about violence in culture. And I have to admit that of all the sermons I've preached, it is this one that has actually caused me the most difficulty in preparation, because for whatever reason, this one hits the closest to home for me. But we need to take a moment and wrestle with these texts. And as we approach this subject, I realize that when we're talking about things like violence and war and peace and justice, this conversation could go in a thousand different directions, none of which we have time to do tonight. So tonight we're going to take a step back and we're going to take just a, a, a take a, a big picture approach to what is the impulse that Jesus would have for us. And so first we're going to talk about the human impulse and then we're going to talk about the Jesus impulse. But before we get to any of this, we, we need to talk a little bit about what drives some of our impulses. And, and I think fear uh, is a major driver for most of us. Uh, and when we become afraid, we will do and say irrational and harmful things. I know what that fear is like. When I was in the seventh grade, uh, I had a very traumatic experience. Uh, I was on the wrestling team of my local junior high school, and I was not very good. And uh, we got to the city tournament. And one of our star wrestlers was sick and could not wrestle. And he was about a weight class or two in front of me. He was bigger than me. I was smaller. And we needed someone to wrestle. We needed a body to put out on the mat. And the coach decided it would be my body. (laughs) And so he told me to go wrestle this kid that was a lot bigger than me. Now, at the time, my family lived in southeastern Idaho in a town called Pocatello. You may or may not be familiar with it. Uh, There was a Native American reservation not far from Pocatello, is one, uh, the Fort Hall Indian Reservation. It's a Shoshone and Bannock Reservation. And so in a lot of the local schools, there was a a fairly significant population of Native American kids. And it happened that the young man that I was going to wrestle that day was a Native American kid. And he was big, and he had like braids, like the whole thing, right? And he was big. Did I mention that? He 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 was a lot bigger than me. And at this moment, I'm thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Like, this is not a good idea, but I can do this. I can do it. And I get out on the mat, and I hear a voice very loudly from a woman in the stands, his mother, kill that white boy. (laughs) And it occurred to me in that moment that 200 years of harm was about to be poured out on me. And I gave up any notion that I was going to win that. My goal from that point forward was to survive it. And so I did what any good wrestler does when he's outmatched. He runs. And I used every move I could think of to not let this very large Native American young man get a hold of me. And for a a round and a half, I survived. And then he got a hold of me, and it was over. Uh, I, I understand like, what fear can do to you when you are very certain that your end is about to come. Uh, I did survive, though. I'm still here. Uh, I was only slightly humiliated. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about this tonight, about this, this idea of the human impulse and what drives us. And Jesus introduces this idea of a human impulse to us in the very first verse of our gospel lesson tonight. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In a nutshell, that's the human impulse, to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. The human impulse is a defensive impulse, first and foremost. It's defensive. I must protect myself. It normally acts out of a place of pride and jealousy and self-interest. I, I have to protect what is mine against those who would take it. Uh, this, this idea of self-interest really comes from the Old Testament where uh, the, the Old Testament Jews were told very clearly that they were not to do harm to their neighbors. And their neighbors were those Jews who were also part of the covenant community. That was very clearly spelled out to them in Leviticus. Now, there were other passages, and there are plenty of them in the Old Testament, that talk about how the Jew is supposed to interact with the Gentile and the sojourner in their midst. But the underlying theme is that first and foremost, you protect your own. Uh, that is the, very much the Old Testament idea. But see, this, this defensive impulse, it, it goes back further even than the Old Testament law. It goes actually all the way back to Genesis 4. When Cain killed his brother Abel. And you remember the story. They both uh, went out to to do their jobs and to bring offerings to the Lord. And God had said he wanted a blood sacrifice. And Abel brings a spotless lamb. Cain brings the fruit of his labor, the, the, the vegetables and the fruit of the field. And God rejects Cain's sacrifice and he accepts Abel's. And out of jealousy, Cain kills his brother. And as a result of this first murder... Cain is cast out of the garden, he is cursed, and he is told that he is going to be a wanderer roaming forever with no home to call his own. And in verse 13 of Genesis 4, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So Cain is afraid that those who find him outside of the garden will want him dead. And God declares that's actually not what's going to happen. Because in the same chapter of Genesis 4, we not only have the first murder introduced into humanity, we have the first mark of vengeance introduced into humanity. God says by way of declaration, if anyone kills you, it will be heaped upon them sevenfold. And then God marks Cain as a way to prevent others from killing him. God is not declaring this vengeance as a good thing. He's declaring it as a matter of fact. This is what happens when the human impulse takes over. Uh, Just a few verses later in chapter 4 of Genesis, you have a, a, a genealogy. And you come to a man named Lamech. And there's this little poem interjected there in this little curious little way. It says, Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And you see, we have, after the first murder, the first sign of vengeance. But then the thing goes completely off the rails and vengeance Becomes increased and increased and increased. You see, the human impulse, the human impulse is to react to violence with escalating violence, to get trapped in a cycle. If, if you think I'm, I'm kidding, I, I'm really not. Like, think about everything that's been happening lately. Uh, think of the protesters that we've seen. On the right, you have the alt right, who often in a very cloaked kind of way are threatening violence, and sometimes in an overt way are threatening violence. If we think that they are not threatening violence, we are being naive. They are, and they know they are. But on the far left, you have another group who doesn't even covertly threaten violence. A group like Antifa embraces it openly. You have escalating vengeance and escalating violence. After the Las Vegas shooting, you may remember, uh, it came out that the, the man who did the shooting had a device on his firearms, a particular device called a bump stock. I didn't even know this thing existed. But do you know what happened in the week or two after it was discovered that he was using this device to make his gun more lethal? These things disappeared, they were bought up. The reaction to this violence was to escalate and weaponize. And if our reaction, if our first reaction, if our first impulse to violence is to to ask the question, how can I make myself more lethal? We are not thinking Christianly. We are falling into the human impulse. The human impulse that's been with us from the beginning. The human impulse also has a desire to demonstrate power and control through dominance. It's a faux power and a faux control. We see it lately in all the reports of women who've been abused. Uh, it's coming from everywhere at this point, and it's good that it's coming out. But that is the human impulse for control and power to protect what is mine, to take what is not mine, because I have a right to it. And it's a jealousy, and it's a pride. And it's part of the human impulse. We have a human impulse toward tribalism, to protect what is mine. We see this, I think, in spades and what's happening around us in our country right now. We have forgotten have forgotten. What it means to be good to our neighbors. And it's all about protecting what is mine. We are living in a moment of profound human impulse. Sinful human impulse. Uh, The human impulse also likes to dehumanize our enemies. By calling them something less than the image of God. All of us made the imago Dei. Made in the image of God. Uh, It is a common thing for people to refer to their enemies as sheep. Sheep or dogs, or ants marching. Because as soon as you can dehumanize and remove the divine from your enemy, you can justify doing anything to them. And human beings are made in the image of God, whether they are are our enemies or not. And so the human impulse is to dehumanize. And lastly, and this is particularly true of religious folks of all stripes, the human impulse wants to make our opponents out to be the enemies of God while we are on the side of God. And if we are the righteous and they are the unrighteous, then we can do whatever we want because we are right and they are wrong. And our problem is that we arrogantly never examine ourselves. And we arrogantly only point to the flaws in the other. And that is the human impulse that leads into the spiral of violence that Jesus is actually speaking very much against. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For if, you love, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see... The Jesus impulse uh, is redemptive. It's a redemptive impulse. What can I do to redeem the situation, to make it better than it is? The human impulse is defensive, but the Jesus impulse is redemptive. Who are your enemies? He says, love your enemies. In the Old Testament context, it was anyone who was outside of the covenant. But Jesus here, most likely to his disciples, is talking about the Romans a government over them who clearly did not like the Jews and who liked this weird Jesus-following sect of the Jews even less. And so when he says to them, love your enemies, he's talking about those in this context that have power over them. Um, That said, it's difficult for us to take these passages from this context and apply them directly to ourselves. Uh, we, in the, in the United States, in our current time, are not living under the same conditions. And yet, and yet, we cannot simply dismiss these words as if this was a different time and a different place, and therefore they don't apply to us. Uh, they do apply to us. And so Jesus is giving a command to his disciples to love their enemies. And he sees this as a transforming initiative, it's a transforming initiative. And he gives some examples of what to do to pray for them and, and, and to greet them and to, to do more for them than they would. And then in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I have to be honest, that verse terrifies me. That verse terrifies me. And, and I think as we look at it, it's helpful that when jesus says perfect he may not mean perfect the way we usually think of it as as in perfection without any flaws though certainly he's anchoring it in god so there's something to that but i think what he means more than perfection is maturity and fullness that he wants his disciples to fully and maturely reflect the attributes of god in their daily life now of course we're not always going to do that I think that these commands are are attainable, but they're imperfectly attainable. I mean, how many of you have ever actually loved your enemies? Uh, I have a person that has been in my life who I would consider an enemy. And he did something to me, and I woke up for two years angry about it. For two years I woke up angry about what this person did to me. And it wasn't until I was in church reciting the Lord's prayer, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And for the first time in two years, it occurred to me that I had never forgiven this guy in my heart and I was bitter and angry. And every morning I would wake up and the first thing on my mind was this person. And it was because I had not properly loved my enemies. Perhaps you have a similar experience. Now, Loving your enemies does not mean that you throw out discernment that we call evil good or pretend like everything is okay. That isn't what loving your enemies means. But it does mean that we can have discernment, a civil discourse, and we can even have firm disagreement and still love our enemies. There there is a way to do that, but we we are living in a time where it seems as though we have forgotten how. And the church is being called, I think, to be an example. And so we come to the second part of this Jesus impulse, this redemptive impulse. We see something of this in Romans 12, where uh, in verse 19, where Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be Oh, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul sounds a lot like Jesus there, doesn't he? You see, this redemptive and transformative initiative, when it comes to something like the Sermon on the Mount and these commands of Paul, as hard as they are to follow, what they are doing is they are pushing us outside of ourselves. If the human impulse is to be defensive, to draw into myself and into my family and into my community and into my cultural class or whatever and protect what is mine, if that is the human impulse, then the Jesus impulse pushes us outside of that. And it actually pushes us toward our enemies, but it also pushes us toward the cross. The cross that was where Christ died for us and the cross that we're called to bear. The Jesus impulse pulls us out of our self-protection and pulls us toward those who hate us. And it's proactive. It's a proactive grace. Most of the time when we talk about issues of peace and violence, we tend to talk about things in defensive and reactive terms. If this happens to me, then I will do this. If this happens to our country, then we will do this. If this happens to my family, then we will react this way. We tend to think in reactive and defensive terms instead of proactive and redemptive terms. What can I do to get out of my comfort zone to stop the harm from happening in the first place? You see, this is what Jesus does. He descends from heaven as the incarnate Son of God to enter into the darkness to pull us out of it. There is nothing more cosmically proactive than that. He comes into the dark place to pull us out. It is a transforming initiative and grace that leads us to a just peacemaking. To think, what is it like for a church or for individuals, or for community, to set aside what is in their own best interest for what is in the best interest of others. What might that look like? Again, we can take that conversation in a thousand different directions, but what I want us to see is that when we come to these complex, social, and interpersonal issues, we have to first have the Jesus impulse. That should be our first thought, and not our last thought. I mean, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Ethan and I were just talking this morning after the service. When we hear about these unfortunate, violent events that have been happening in some churches around the country, as a minister, I worry about that. I, I actually have lost sleep thinking about what are we going to do if that happens. And my first impulse, as, as uh, friends have shared with me, their first impulse, when I hear something like that happens, my thought is someone needs to kill that guy. Someone needs to end that. That's my first impulse. I don't want that to be my first impulse. I don't want that to be my first impulse. In an imperfect world, when we live in the, the in-between, in this, in this Advent, where Christ has come, but we're still waiting for him to come again, it's, we're not going to have the ideal. It's always going to be messy, and it's going to be ugly, and we're going to have to make hard decisions, hard ethical and moral decisions. But i don 't want my first impulse to be fear, and I don't want my first impulse to be to react to violence in a violent way i don 't want that to be my first impulse. So we have this proactive, gracious kind of kind of love. Uh, we see it demonstrated in Paul, we see it demonstrated in Jesus. We also see it demonstrated in the life of a man named Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is an African American gentleman of approximately 50 or 60 years old. He's a musician, and some years ago he decided that he was going to take on racism one person at a time by setting up interviews and conversations with members of the Ku Klux Klan. And over a course of many years of doing this, he has persuaded over 200 members of the KKK to disavow the movement and to give it up and walk away. And he is a Christian, and he has said openly and vocally many times that his motivation is this, this Jesus impulse to reach out to the people who hate you and try to pull them in. Now, uh, G- uh, Paul does give us a little bit of a warning here. He says, um, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, uh, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. And this is what Daryl Davis says. He says, sometimes it's not possible to live peaceably with all. Some KKK members reacted with anger or even violence to Daryl. Quote, I was not seriously injured. I faced knives and guns and, of course, fists. I've had to physically fight upon occasion. But that is not my first resort. I did not carry any weapons to my interviews. On one occasion, it was only one Klansman who attacked me. On another, it was three of them. I won, both physically on the street and legally in the court. (laughs) I love what he says here because he's acknowledging a certain reality. That when we live in a dark world that is twisted up with this human impulse to hate and violence... Um, it's not always going to be clean and neat. We're not always going to be able to just go and make peace with everyone because some people really do want to do you and others harm. So it's going to be ugly. But what I love about this is he said, I never carried a weapon. I, I, I never went into it thinking that it was going to end violently. I went into it trying to build a bridge for peace and reconciliation. And that is a Christian Proactive sort of love. Now, I say that to you, and I feel the need to add this caveat. Do not misinterpret me and, and think that I'm making some sort of political or legal statement. I'm not. I happen to own firearms, I own six of them. I hope to go hunting this week. Okay? Um, I'm not making a political statement, I'm making a theological statement about what is our impulse and what drives us and how do we react. And I've seen this work. I've seen this work in my own life, this sort of proactive grace to build a bridge to an enemy. Um, it's not that dramatic, but it was impactful for me, and it taught me a lesson. Years ago, when we were still living in zelianople we had a neighbor who lived about three doors down. She was a widow, and she'd been a widow for a long time, 30 or 40 years. Her husband died young, and she never remarried. And uh, for many, many years, for the first 200 years of Harmony's existence, no one that lived in Harmony Borough had their own mailbox. We all had a P.O. box, and you had to go to the post office every day to check your mail. And a few years ago, the U.S. Postal Service was closing that post office down, and everyone for the first time is going to have their own mailboxes at their house. But the way the town was laid out, the the post office actually sent out a letter with a map telling you where you were to put up your own mailbox, which is fine, right? But this is where they wanted it. And it happened that ours was going to be across the street next to one of our neighbors and next to Harmony Borough offices. I always joke that when there was a PO box in town, we were the closest because the post office was directly across the street from our house. And when they closed it down, I had to walk an extra 15 feet. So everyone else was, con- was, was convenienced, but I was inconvenienced by 15 feet. But it's neither here nor there. So we decided that instead of putting up three posts for three different mailboxes, we would put up one like single post, one kind of unit, make it look nice, put all the mailboxes together. So since one of the boxes belonged to the borough, I went to one of the borough guys, one of the maintenance guys, and said, hey, why don't we just build one thing, make it look nice, it'll be great. So for about $10 of, of um, um, materials, the... Maintenance guy for the borough builds this thing, and I go out and I'm with him, and we are putting the mailboxes on. And wouldn't you know? Here comes my neighbor. Now she was an angry lady. I always have one angry neighbor everywhere I live. <laughs> there's one. She was she was an angry lady. She yelled at people, children, children particularly she liked to yell at. Um, the first words I heard her say that day were, "They don't even pay taxes." <laughs> to which I thought, who's she talking about? The IRS tells me I pay taxes. <laughs> they don't even pay taxes. And, you're, and she's yelling at the borough guy. Like, they don't even pay taxes, and you're helping them put up a mailbox. She says, I'm going to go to the council. No one helps me, she said. And it was that last line that struck me. I mean, she's wrong about the tax thing, and she was wrong to be upset. It was silly. But that last part caught me. No one helps me. And it occurred to me that for a widow of many decades that she's probably right. Nobody helps her. And I didn't know what to do about it. I was kind of mad that she gave us a tongue lashing. But a few months later, winter had come, and it snowed. And in front of her house, she had this you know, 15 feet of sidewalk, and that's all she had that needed to be shoveled. So I was out there early one day shoveling walks, and I went down the street, and I just shoveled the front of her walk real fast. And she saw me. And she came out very embarrassed in a very kind of hustling kind of way and tried to pay me $10 for for literally like four minutes worth of work. And I refused. I wasn't going to take the money. And she had the weirdest reaction. She scowled at me. She was angry that I wouldn't take her money. And then she got a tear in her eye, and she turned and ran back inside. It was a strange reaction. But what I found was this. In my subsequent interactions with her, they were pleasant. And it was a small thing, it was a small thing. But I felt compelled to kind of build that proactive bridge to a person who, to that point, had only ever been nasty to me. It can work. It can work in your interpersonal lives. I think, though it's far more complex, I think as the issues get bigger, and the communities get larger, and we're talking about nations, I still think it works. And so what Jesus is doing, and what Paul is doing, it's, it's not just about emulating God and emulating Jesus, though it is that. He's showing us a third way to break out of that downward spiral of, of anger and murder and vengeance. They go all the way back to Genesis 4. To proactively reach out to your enemies and cling to the cross in the name of Christ and preach the gospel. It's, it's what he did for us. You see, the Jesus, the Jesus impulse is a saving impulse. Jesus, Jesus came to us when we were still his enemies and reached down into the darkness. And he always refused to be violent. Even in those cases where he used cords and whips, there's some reason to believe that he's driving out the animals and he doesn't use force against people. Still, he doesn't defend himself. The nonviolent Jesus is never violent with his accusers. He's never violent with us. And yet all of our violence is poured out on him. And all of our violence is poured out on him so that we can be freed from it. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to escalate every time we feel threatened. Because Christ is king. And there's a new kingdom being inaugurated. And we are in a very uncomfortable in between times and it's really messy. But it's not always going to be this way. And so we need to live and think like a people who have a different impulse, a redemptive impulse, and a saving impulse, first and foremost. And and let that other one die. Let the other one die. Because Christ has already killed it and it's already been beaten. And so let's, let's rest in that. Let's rest in that hope that the human impulse is being killed and it no longer has to have reign over us.